This morning we are in Genesis 19, verses 30 to 38, as we follow the journey of Abraham, his journey of faith. And for the past few weeks, we have been looking at the events surrounding God's destruction of Sodom. We've seen there a stark contrast being drawn between Abraham, the faith of Abraham, and the very many compromises of Lot. Despite those contrasts between Lot and Abraham, the Bible affirms strongly that both men are righteous and they are forever linked together in their faith. They're both called righteous. And it's amazing when we consider the life of Lot, especially today. God was the one, though, who gave them righteousness, who made them righteous. It was not a work of their own. We've seen already the many failings of Abraham. The very next passage about Abraham, we will see even more failings of his. And even still, though, though, though he failed, Abraham really did try to live in right relationship with God, try to live in obedience to God. He desired to live out the righteousness that God had bestowed upon him. But Lot was different. God had also granted Lot righteousness, but Lot really struggled to separate himself from the things of the world. It became abundantly clear last week when we saw him unite himself to Sodom in in terrible compromise, and it almost destroyed him. And it wasn't just Lot that took up residence in Sodom. It was Sodom that found a home in the heart of Lot. Even as Sodom is, Lot hesitates. He finds it hard to leave Sodom. And when the angels tear him from the city, he asks to go to Zoar instead of fleeing to the hills. He asks to go to Zoar. It's like a a mini Sodom. And God amazingly grants him his request, graciously sparing not just Lot, but this little wicked city of Zoar. Today, as we complete the story of Lot, we're going to see that compromise led to fear in Lot's heart and ruin in his life. We'll also see that God loves to take what is dead and give it life. And so, third, if we want to bear fruit, we need to die. Now, disclaimer, like I did last week, this text, the text we're considering today, confronts us with some very adult themes, very uncomfortable themes. So if there are young ears, um, yeah, just be aware. (laughs) Let's read this passage. Genesis 19, though we are considering verses 30 to 38, let's start reading in verse 15 of Genesis 19. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, 
Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and, is it, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of that city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up, from, went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on the earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with their father, with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Father, it is a strange thing you have put in your word for us this morning. But you put it there, and it is good and it is holy, though it seems like a disaster. So teach us this morning about yourself, about your heart, about what you call us into, let the goodness of your word saturate our minds and our hearts that we might from it bear much fruit. Thank you for your word, uh, that even though it can be difficult, you love us through it. Praise you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we just read it. Lot's family of four had been reduced to three. Though Lot's wife had escaped from the fires of Sodom with her husband, with her daughters, she wasn't able to separate herself from that place. She wasn't able to remove her identity from Sodom. 
And so from Zoar, she looks back with longing upon the city as it's burning. Likely she is weeping over this loss. And then she becomes the salt of her tears. If she so desires Sodom, then God will give to her Sodom and its consequences. And now it's just Lot and his two daughters in Zoar. But in our passage, they're not in Zoar. They've escaped to the hills. Ironic, isn't it? It's where the angels told them to flee originally. Now they're hiding out in the hills. He wanted Zoar on the brink of destruction as Zoar, included in the cities of the Valley of Sidim, were all slated for destruction. He, he wanted Zoar. He wanted to go there. He wanted that city to be spared. He couldn't conceive of his life. Lot couldn't conceive of his life without the comforts and pleasures, perhaps vices, of this unholy city, this little wicked city. But something obviously changes. He's, be, he's become afraid of Zoar. Look at that again in verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. Lot was afraid of Zoar. So he hid in the hills, lived in a cave. That's a pretty high degree of fear. What would possess you, I wonder, to flee your home and go live in a cave? To be fair, for millennia, people have lived in the caves surrounding the, the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in such a cave. And these caves were most commonly a, a temporary place of escape. You'd run away to go hide in them. You'd run away from an escaping army or maybe a plague breaking out. Or maybe you wanted to escape society for solitude, like the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But... To go from the nobility of Sodom, where Lot was one of Sodom's leaders, to the obscurity of a cave, is that not a dishonorable end? An end? It is an end. This passage is the end of the story of Lot, and we hear no more regarding his life. He is lost to this cave surrounding the Dead Sea somewhere. So if, if the caves were most commonly a place of escape, a place to go find refuge in, in a time of danger, then what is it that Lot is afraid of in Zoar? What drives him to leave the city he loved, he thought he loved, for the darkness of a cave? Well, what we try to do here at Emmanuel is to interpret Scripture with Scripture. We must remember the context of this passage. Always, context, context, context. And the surrounding context of this passage is God's destruction of the wicked. He leveled Sodom. Lot is afraid of Zoar because he couldn't help but remember the black billowing smoke that rose from the valley of Sidim. He thought he wanted to live in Zoar, but now he can't shake that thought that at any moment, fire and brimstone might come again. And who says it won't? Who says that Zoar is safe? 
Who, who says that it, judgment isn't coming for this little city of sin? Lot is terrified, not of Zoar, but of God's judgment of Zoar. Think about it. If you saw what Lot saw, would you ever look at a dark cloud the same again? So running ultimately in fear of God, Lot finds this cave, a functional bunker to shelter he and his daughters from skies that rain terror. And I think there's a whole sermon in that. We saw this last week. Lot is a man of contradiction. So the beginning of the story of Lot. He begins in Ur with Abraham. And Lot, too, leaves everything behind. He trusts his uncle. He trusts in the God of his uncle. And he travels across the Fertile Crescent into the Promised Land. Lot was a man of faith. He left everything. He believed. Because he believed with the faith of Abraham, he was blessed. We saw him grow increasingly wealthy, flocks expanding. And he became so wealthy that there was a conflict between his flocks and the flocks of Abraham. And so they agreed. Really, Lot chose to separate himself from Abraham to find greener pastures. But in all of this, Lot, Lot is righteous, holding the faith of Abraham until that faithful parting, fateful parting, it would seem. Lot then begins to inch his way closer and closer to Sodom. First, he drives his flocks towards Sodom. Then he's camping out outside of the walls of Sodom. And then he's living inside of Sodom. And then he's one of Sodom's leaders He's moving closer closer to Sodom, further from Abraham, closer to the world, further from God, closer to instant pleasure, further from promises of a future reward. And even as fire for Sodom broods in the sky, Lot pleaded to just keep a little piece of it. Is not Zoar a little city? Let me have it. Let me go there. And God's favor is upon Lot, stunningly. And so with incredible grace and forbearance, God gives Lot his selfish request. God God is honoring Lot as righteous, even though he allows him to have a selfish request. And we see this affirmed in the New Testament in 2 Peter when Peter calls Lot righteous. He says, righteous Lot. We saw that verse last week. And yet Lot, though he is righteous, by the grace of God, he makes these foolish choices, even evil choices. And in Genesis 19.30, we come to this point of ultimate contradiction with Lot. He is a righteous man. Afraid of God's judgment. And again, Lot's living in a cave. Lot chose the cave. Couldn't Lot have gone back to Abraham? To those tents? Would not have Abraham seen him coming and ran down the road and embraced him? His beloved nephew? 
Would not Abraham have rejoiced? But Lot chooses the cave. Prodigal nephews return? But Lot chooses the cave. Why? Think of it. I think it's a testimony to the shame that he felt. He felt fear that he'd be rejected by Abraham, perhaps even by God. Maybe he would return to his uncle and his uncle would say, I told you so. Now look at what your life has become. What have you done to yourself? Lot was afraid. He feared judgment. Judgment from God. Judgment from Abraham. And in his cave he sought security, but all he found there was shame and fear. I do not think Lot's situation is unique. I don't think it's rare. I think it's common. I think it's present in this room, and there might be people here who are in a cave. I wonder if you know what I mean. There are so many Christians who have come to faith in Jesus. They've been covered in Christ's righteousness, and they are saved. It is just as Jesus said. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he passes from death to life. Jesus promises there an eternal security. Right? For everyone who believes, they are eternally secured. They will not come into judgment, but Christ has already secured their everlasting life. It is done. It is finished. Once saved, always saved. And God will cause his saints to persevere. If he starts a good work, he will bring it to completion, and no one will snatch you from his hand. The promises of Scripture abound over this. But in that time, since you first believed, you found it really difficult to leave the world behind. Perhaps it's pride or pleasure or security or comfort or fear of what others may think of you or a thousand other things. They're hard to let go of. You're not as big a sinner as they were in Sodom. But you've become comfortable and maybe even desensitized to Zoar. You know that Jesus is the only way, that he is the truth, and through him there is life. You know that. But you're not stupid. You know what the Bible says. In 1 John we read, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Living in Zoar is getting caught between the things of this world and the will of God. And such Attention to live in such a place, it creates this insecurity. You begin to wonder, is, is the love of the Father truly in me? 
You begin to wonder, will I be passing away with the things of the world, or will I be abiding forever with God? You ask, does God really love me? Am I really saved? I can't seem to get it all together. Am I really a Christian? And it feels like at any moment the hammer could fall. You live in this storm of fear and shame. Are you like Lot, a righteous person, afraid of judgment? Well, fear not, brother or sister. Though our passage certainly takes us into darker territory, there is redemption that bursts through it, and it's hard to see right now. But first, let's get a little darker. For out of fear and shame, Lot lives in this cave, and out of fear, Lot is violated shamefully. Verse 31. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on the earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve our offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Lot's old. He's probably too old to remarry, too old to have a son. Only a son would continue Lot's lineage, continue the family name. Only the son would be able to live up to the expectations and demands of an inheritance in that age. Additionally, their father no longer has the social standing to arrange a marriage, which is how marriage happened then. But even if he did, even if he did have some kind of standing, the whole society had just been wiped out in fire and brimstone. There were no men. Lot had his fears. The daughters have a fear of a different kind. They're afraid that their father's line will die with him. They are afraid that they will never become mothers. Nothing wrong with those desires, right? Everything wrong. Everything wrong with how they tried to change it. Instead of turning to God who can create life when there is none. The end of verse 31 says that the daughters are guided by the manner of all the earth. Or you could say the custom of all the earth. Lot's daughters, they just wanted to be like everyone else. They just wanted to do what everyone else was doing. The book of Judges chronicles one of the darkest periods of Israel's history. For the most part, it is a dark and godless time, and the very last words of the book of Judges are as follows. 
In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That perfectly captures what Lot's daughters are doing. They are doing what is right in their own eyes after the manner of all the earth. One thing that we can glean from this is how sad it is, the sad consequences reaped by being unequally yoked. Lot married an unbeliever, so clearly. So as Lot As Lot's faith languishes, and as he makes compromises, he clearly isn't passing his faith on to his daughters. He's passively teaching them compromise. He's passively teaching them to go along with the flow of society, while his wife actively is teaching them a worldly life, a worldly lifestyle, the ways of the world. And right here in this passage, it is proven Body and soul, Lot's daughters are daughters of Sodom. They know that their father doesn't share their convictions. He would never agree to incest. And that's something that the biblically explicitly and very thoroughly condemns. Check out Leviticus 18 if you have some time. So, because they know they can't convince their father of this abomination, they effectively drug him. Back in Sodom, Lot offered his daughters to be violated by the gang outside of his house. And now in this terrible and ironic twist, Lot is violated by his daughters. He was going to give them over to Sodom, but it turns out He didn't need to. They already embodied Sodom. His daughters have become Sodom. Lot tried to make a home there in Sodom, but now, having been drugged by its poison, he passively and helplessly is tormented by his evils as he unknowingly impregnates his daughters. An evil begets evil. Verse 36. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son who called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. The name Abraham, we saw, means father of many nations. Ab. Raham, Ab is father, as in Abba, father. Moab, Moab, means from father. Ben-Ami means son of my kinsman, specifically my paternal kinsman. So from illegitimate, incestuous origins is born two of Israel's perennial enemies, the Moabites and the Ammonites. And they will be a thorn in Israel's side for all, or almost all, of Israel's history. After the manner of Lot's daughters, evil seductions continue 
through the Moabites and Ammonites. Listen to Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The Moabites and Ammonites persist for centuries as a thorn in Israel's side, and even when the Jews return from exile, guess who's there waiting as a foil to prevent them from rebuilding Jerusalem? Nehemiah 4, 7, and 8. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard of the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. Yes, they were deep and lasting enemies of Israel. But as difficult as the Moabites and Ammonites were, they persisted because God was gracious. The Moabites and Ammonites existed, persisted, endured because God was gracious. He was upholding his promise to Lot. The promise given to him because of his kinship with Abraham, because he joined in the faith of Abraham. So there's this scene where Israel is wandering through the wilderness. And uh, as they're wandering, God forbids them to harass the Moabites and the Ammonites, the only two people groups that Israel's forbidden to harass. And twice in Deuteronomy chapter 2, God says, I have given that land to the sons of Lot as a possession. You have descendants and land. It's just like Abraham, right? How true it is when God says of himself, he says he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. How gracious did his covenant with Lot and preserves his lineage and gives his lineage land. Yes, he abounds in steadfast love to the thousandth generation. And nowhere does this become more apparent for the Moabites than in the story of Ruth. Ruth the Moabite. A book of a Bible is devoted to this. Take some time this week. Read Ruth chapter 3. The parallels between Ruth chapter 3 and Genesis 19.30-38 are remarkable. But instead of depravity, like we see in Genesis, in the book of Ruth, Boaz, from the tribe of Judah, marries the Moabite woman as her redeemer. Lot separated himself from the covenant. He wandered off into worldly things. But his daughter, Ruth, she returns to covenant blessing. Lot's alienated family is reconciled in Ruth. But because God loves to demonstrate the extravagance of his love, Ruth's great-grandson, 
would be Israel's greatest king, King David. But still, even more, a greater king would come. More than 40 generations later would be born the king of all kings and the lord of all lords, Jesus Christ, the lion of Judah with Moabite blood in his veins. Jesus is the son of Abraham and a son of Lot. God loves to take what is dead and give it life. You could look at Lot's life and rightly think that all was lost. He is a man of ruin. But because of his covenant with Abraham, with the God of Abraham, in spite of Lot's foolishness, God counts Lot as righteousness. And though Lot is left in a cave, he apportions to him land. And though his lineage is born in evil, and though evil begets evil, God redeems his people through the Messiah. All his people through the Messiah. Yes, the Messiah is the redemption of all who believe. And now let us look at another link between the story of Lot and the Messiah and God's love for resurrection. Remember this passage from last week? Jesus said, Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. How exactly does it work that by losing your life, you will save it? What are the mechanics behind that? I want to show you a parallel passage to this one we just read in Luke. John chapter 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father, the Father will honor him. Did you see that kingdom principle that permeates all creation, all of God's reality? If something dies, it bears much fruit. This is a principle of resurrection, and it permeates our reality, Christians. This is our reality. You see it in the story of Lot. As far as the biblical narrative is concerned, Lot dies in this cave. But God resurrects his legacy in the most profound way possible. So do you feel that shame, that fear of Lot? Have you wondered those things? Does God truly love you? Am I really saved? Have you felt a deadness inside that you cannot shake? Have you compromised with Sodom or made a home in Zoar? Have you? Christian, let these things die. They belong to the cross. 
Your identity in Christ is one of freedom and joy and life. You are a child of God, brothers and sisters. No matter your past sins, no matter your present fears, God only has love for you, only has love for you. We have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, that that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Yes, God loved you long before you've ever loved him, ages before. And if you can see his love for you demonstrated on that cross, then let his love fill your heart. That love is an expression of love towards you, towards all who believe. Let his love cast fear from your soul. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. No condemnation. There are no clouds of darkness brooding over you, believer. Why then, why do you live in that cave? There's only shame and fear. Freely return to the tents of covenant blessing. Let the resurrection of the power of God work within you, newly creating, newly working, new things bearing fruit. When Christ came and when Christ came, sorry, when you came to Christ in faith, you died so he could live. Because I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So when temptations enter your mind, would you remember Sodom's ruin, Lot's compromise, and crucify them and deny them? And as they lie there in the grave, those desires, let the will of God rise in your heart, which is the spirit of Christ living within you. Christ living within you. Crucify lust with a passion for purity. Kill anger with life-giving patience. Forsake shame with God's abounding love. Pick up your sins. Pick up your desires, the desires of your flesh and your dreams and your ambitions, and follow Christ to the cross. And then watch as fruits of righteousness and life burst from that place of death. God loves to resurrect. And you will bear much fruit because he promised it. Very practically, and according to our passage today, if you continually fear that you are not saved, And run on that hamster wheel in your mind. Feel like judgment is coming for you. You don't know if it is. 
those thoughts are not coming from God. You are choosing to live in that cave. And the enemy would love nothing more than for you to be lost in its darkness. You must battle those thoughts with the truths of Scripture. Go to your Bibles. Wash those sinful thoughts with life-giving truth of Scripture. Jesus said, as we have already seen, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So do you believe Jesus? When he said, it is finished, do you believe it was finished? By trusting in him, his work is already complete. You do not come into judgment, but you pass from death to life, and it is done, forever done. You need do nothing more. Fight those fears with truth. Truth that flows from Scripture, filled, brimming with the love of God. What could have become of Lot's life if he had done that? Certainly, Lot would not have died in dishonor and fear. God would have resurrected his life because he loves to give life where there was death. That's what God does. He is a God of creation. He is a creator, and it didn't just happen in the beginning. He is the creator. In death, we get life, and we get to bear much fruit to the glory of God, to the glory of God who gives life where there was death. Brothers and sisters, that is what you are called to. No caves. Come out. Live in the light. If you're, not, if you're in this room and you are not a believer, if Jesus is not your Lord and your Savior, what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Come to Christ. Come to him and know life where you've only experienced death. Let's pray. You are such a good God, I say it again. Good, gracious, righteous, faithful to a thousandth generation, awesome God, to have put Moabite blood in your son, awesome. And now through him you have called us Gentiles who were once alienated and far from you into your family. You've brought us into your home, into your tents. You call us sons and daughters. Oh Lord, may that incredible reality truly permeate our hearts and we live like this as if we are, because we are, royal priests unto our God. Let us as faithful ambassadors proclaim these glories to all the world that they may know Christ crucified, risen, and ascended. Bow their knee and be saved. Thank you for the story of Lot and its darkness to show us how good the light of grace. 
It's in Christ's name I pray it. Amen.